Uh, my question relates to, uh, uh, and I mentioned it at the table, uh, the chances of, of Jason Kenny nor Brian Dean leading a conservative party. Uh, there's been speculation about uh, Michelle Van Poole, Ron Ambrose, and maybe some other candidates. Uh, could you uh, uh, let us know what you think about that? The first, and, and this refers to a poll that, that Main Street did, where um, they asked who should lead this new conservative party if it happens, and they listed Kenny, Gene, or someone else, and someone else won. Um, and part of that is if you put on a ballot uh, for any election, uh, none of the above, none of the above would win. Our favorite politician is someone that's not on the ballot. And so uh, that, that often happens. Uh, I, I think uh, of, of how attractive uh, Jim Prentice was in the private sector, or John Turner when he was in the private sector, and only if those people would come back. And then they come back and things aren't, aren't quite straight. That being said, um, both of those ones about Rona Ambrose and Michelle Rambler are quite intriguing. I will say Rona Ambrose, to my mind, has been much more impressive as interim leader of the Conservatives than she was as a minister, as a, as a junior minister. Um, but I'm not sure that this is something that she she wants to, to do. Um, I know people were recruiting her for the Conservative, the federal Conservative leadership. Michelle Rempel as well. Uh, Michelle Rempel is also a, uh, a junior minister and has become one of the major thorns in the side of, of Justin Trudeau and his cabinet members. And so um, I think Michelle Rempel has done a great job as, as opposition. But she has been wooed to run for the federal leadership. She has been wooed to run the provincial leadership. She is being wooed to run for mayor of Calgary. Uh, it's one of those where every job is, is open. So, uh, But I think at the end of the day, there's, there's two. Kenny and Jean have too much of a head start on this. Um, and for some third person to come in at the last minute, I, I just can't see that happening. There, does that mean there, there won't be a third or fourth candidate? No. I mean, many times you, you try to run in a leadership race just to give yourself some profile, to get some ideas across. That's why there's 14 people, 13 people now running for the federal conservative leadership, some that didn't even live in the country. Um, but I, I think really it, it is a two-person race. It is Kenny versus uh, Gene, and we will see how that plays itself out. Hi, my name is Peter Beal, and uh, I, I'm thinking this whole question of, of merging and things like that. Right now, the Liberal Party, one of the leadership candidates is saying, let's merge with the Alberta Party. I mean, liberals are almost about to disappear in Alberta, but just when federally they're, you know, increasing their, their presence in Alberta. So how 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 can that be stopped? That's <laughs> how can the liberals be stopped, or how no, can that, that merger no, be stopped? No, how can the merger okay. be stopped? I'm a proud liberal. Okay, <laughs> there you go. All right. So the Liberal Party prior to 2015. Uh, David Swan was proposing a merger with the NDP, the Liberals and the NDP. Uh, I have referred to the Liberals as the gradually disappearing party provincially. 
1993, Lawrence Decor was very close to winning the leadership to become the premier of this province. Um, and they, in every subsequent election, their vote total has dropped, their seat total has dropped. Um, and they're, they're in a lot of trouble. In the, in the last election, uh, they couldn't find candidates for every riding. David Swan remained very personally popular in Mountain View in Calgary. Um, but if there is a by-election, if Swan ever steps down, I can't see the Liberals holding on to that seat. Um, people aren't sure what the Liberal Party stands for in, in the province of Alberta. Lawrence Decor was a centrist, almost centrist, uh, Mike Percy uh, was his finance critic and would have been finance minister under, under the Liberals. He talked about, you know, brutal cuts uh, in 93. Uh, and then they became more of a left party. Uh, under David Swan, they may even be left of the NDP. Uh, he's been criticizing them from, from the left. And the Liberals of Alberta have made a, a series of blunders over the years where they select leaders based on whether they got kicked out of the PC party or not, or whether they annoyed members of the PC party. And, and you laugh until I start going through the list of names of who the Liberals have had. And we start with Nancy McBeth, Nancy Bukowski, the former education minister under uh, Don Getty, who lost the leadership to Rob Klein and then became liberal leader. We look at Kevin Taft, who is a bureaucrat who is being censored by the Klein government, becomes liberal leader. We look at David Swan, who was fired as um, a health advocate for his position on Kyoto, becomes the liberal leader. Raj Sherman uh, gets kicked out of the PC caucus. He becomes the, the liberal leader. So. For many years, the Liberals have become the non-PC party. If you don't like the PCs, vote for the Liberals. And then the Wild Rose Party emerged. There were people who used to vote Liberal that then subsequently voted Wild Rose because they were the non-PC party. And so now there's this big hole in the middle of Alberta politics, I believe. I think there's an opportunity for someone to grab that centrist mandate. The problem is the Alberta party has a great name, a popular leader, a good MLA, but it's a one-man show. And the Liberal Party isn't quite sure who they are, what they are. Um, the, the Unite the Center movement that occurred in Red Deer, there was a lot of XPCers that were there. And so I think there's an opportunity, but it may be too, too sudden for us. And it's fascinating that you mention that because the federal Liberals are under resurgence right now. And, uh, I mean, they want a seat. Ken Kerr won a seat in Calgary the first time since 1968. They have four seats in Alberta. Um, so the first time in, in 50 years. So the, the federal liberals are resurging. You don't have the backlash that you did, like, in 1980 to them. But the provincial liberals, I'm not sure what they are and what they stand for. Um, and, so that, that's a challenge that they have. But what I will say is there's an opportunity for something in the middle. But it can't be the Liberals at this stage. And it can't be the Alberta Party. And it can't be XPCers that lost to Jason Kennedy or lost in May of 2015. You know, so when you hear Thomas Lukasik and Stephen Mandel talking about the United Center, you guys have already been tossed out on your butt, right? Uh, it's going to take a new group of people. But if, in fact, the merger occurs and you have a right party and a left party, something is going to happen in between. So it just won't happen 2019. We're going to try a different mic. Go ahead, Trevor. Here. Yep. Go ahead, Trevor. 
Okay, I'm Charlotte Page. Uh, my question deals with campaign finances. Okay. And I think you said that uh, the Wild Roads have plenty of money and the PCs have debts. Yeah. Yet the constituency associations are well funded on the PC side. Okay. Um, I think you also said that small oil companies are contributing to the PCs, but I'm not sure. No, that was, uh, that. It, it was um, the large firms were still donating money to the PCs. It was the, the movement of small and medium-sized firms that were moving to the Wild Rose Party prior to the 2015 election. Okay, so the question is, how does Jason Kenney get the funds that he needs to win the election? Yeah. You mentioned that there were certain regulations on the merger of funds. Yeah. Perhaps you could elaborate on that. Okay. Um, and, and what are the rules in terms of publishing the amounts that companies give to political parties? So we know who is contributing how much to who. Okay. There's, a, there's, a, there's a lot in there. So the first part about the publication of campaign donations uh, has always applied. And they will list the, uh, the donors. And that includes companies, that includes individuals. What makes it complicated is there's a lot of numbered companies, so you don't know actually who the numbered company is. Uh, under the one of the major changes the NDP made, and by the way, with support of the Wild Rose Party, is they have dropped the donation limits and they have banned corporate and union donations. This will have a major impact on the 2019 election and moving forward because there are real rules now compared to what we used to have in 2015 and, and prior. BC still has no rules, um, but Alberta has really put in rules, and I think this was a good thing from a public policy perspective. It puts, can, uh, puts Alberta in line with stuff that we already have federally, but there is a partisan aspect to it. And that is when the NDP said, well, we'll get rid of our union donations and you get rid of your corporate donations, there was always a lot more money from the corporate donations than there was from the union. and it will hand-string the PCs. It is really one of the drivers for why the PCs need to merge because they can't raise the money that they used to. And so that is a that is a problem. Um, where is Jason Kenney going to get the money? Well, there's a couple things. One is they, they ban the corporate and union donations. Then they have brought in a, a limit on how much you can donate. But it hadn't taken effect yet during the initial stages of PC leadership. So when I said there was a donation limit uh, of $1,000 for party leadership races, that started October 1st of 2016. So those first three months, Jason Kenney could raise whatever he wanted, could spend whatever he wanted, and he took full advantage of that loophole in the law. Those loopholes are now gone. Um, so the, the, the issue of the money is a major merger question. As I said, Elections Alberta says you can't merge assets. Jason Kenney had six lawyers give a press conference that said, yes, we can. But those, you know, I've seen enough court action. You don't base it on one group of lawyers. There's always another group of lawyers who can have another opinion. And the fact that every one of those lawyers was tied to the Kenney campaign suggests that there may be truth that you can't merge assets. But even if you could, that still doesn't mean that there's not a complication in how you structure it. Um, and so um, all of the money 
as it were. But you can find out who, who donated money. Uh, I, they, they have to list your name once you hit $250. And that could be a golf tournament, for example. Thank you, Councillor. So you touched in passing just on the urban-rural split on yep. the, the right in this province. Uh, obviously, rural would be wild rose, urban would be uh, would be the PCs. Um, what I'm getting anecdotally from just talking to people, particularly out in the country, is there's a real visceral, not quite hatred, but a real visceral dislike of members of the Wild Rose Party towards the old conservatives. There's a real hostility there. I think there's also that hostility goes the other direction. But the third, second part of the question is, in this equation, we still have the NDP, and the NDP is very much an urban party. Can we, so first off, do you think it's possible for the Wild Rose and the uh, the PCs to put their knives away and quit sticking them in each other? And secondly, is there a possibility that the NDP will hold a significant portion of that urban vote they got the last time? Yeah, so there's, there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, there's absolute lot of hatred between PCs and Wild Rose. What they have to figure out is whether they hate each other more than they hate the NDP. And, and that's something they need to, to figure out. And one of the reasons why there's that visceral dislike between individuals, and some of it is personal and not party, it's because they used to be one party. And the best example I'll give is it's not from the provincial stage, it was from the, the federal merger. And they had that, that uh, the Winds of Change conference in the late 1990s that, that uh, you know, Preston Manning tried to organize about basically bringing PCers and the Reform Party together. And one of the people that showed up unannounced was John Crosby. And John Crosby walks in and basically lambastes them and said, we used to all be one party until you blankety blank screwed it all up by leaving. Right? And so that was an illustration of some of the hatred. So the reason it's so high is they all used to be one family. And family disputes are much more contentious than non-family disputes, as I'm sure some of you may, may know. Um, but will they put that aside for the other reasons? Um, the, the thing about Brian Jean and Jason Kenney, they weren't exposed to that because they were in Ottawa. They, they knew about it peripherally because they were still Albertans, but they weren't in the trenches. And so they're both a bit outsiders, which, which will help that. And so they have to figure out who they can more. Then it comes to the, the urban-rural split in the NDP. Just want to explain a bit about Wild Rose. So Wild Rose won that by-election with Paul Hinman, okay, in Calgary. Heather Forsyth crossed the floor. Okay. There was another person who won Cal a seat in Calgary in 2012. And in 2015, in the by-election, Jim Prentice's old riding, the Wild Roses won. So that's four urban seats when we combine two elections and a by-election. That's a pretty big gap. And here's something else that's coming down the pipe before 2019. Boundary changes in the province of Alberta. There is a boundary commission, uh, uh, an impartial boundary commission, looking at boundaries because rural ridings have been well overrepresented compared to urban ridings in this province. They do this every 10 years by statute to revise boundaries. 10 years ago, they kicked the can down the road 
and they refused to acknowledge the problem. And they solved it by adding four seats, two in Calgary, one in Edmonton, one in Fort McMurray. And they also said, we can't do that again. So 10 years down the line, you need to shift boundaries, which is a great idea if you're the commission in 2007 to be able to say, this needs to be done. We're not going to do it. These poor suckers 10 years later are going to have to do it. If that happens, that is going to reduce the number of rural ridings, increase the number of urban ridings, and while that may be legitimate on population grounds and other grounds, it will be seen as a partisan issue because the NDP is in power and the NDP is going to benefit from that. The other issue, can the NDP hold on? Well, right now, um, there's an old political saying in Alberta politics that Alberta politics is a three-legged stool. Calgary, Edmonton, rest of the province. To form government, you got to win two of the three stools. Current polling has Wild Rose winning rural, NDP winning Edmonton, PCs winning Calgary, okay? which is one of the drivers for the, the merger. Um, and so uh, could the NDP still win the election in 2019? Absolutely they could. Two years is a long time. Bear in mind, five years ago, Alison Redford had just won a majority government. We've had a lot of premiers since then. Um, two years could matter, even with a united conservative party. If the economy, now bear in mind there's a lot of ifs here, because we're projecting the future. If we actually start to see construction on a pipeline, if the unemployment rate drops and the deficit drops, um, and the ballot question starts to change from economic issues to social issues, we're looking at, at, a, at a, another NDP government. If, on the other hand, John Morgan becomes Premier of BC, Kendra Morgan gets wrapped up in court cases, uh, Keystone fails for whatever reason, um, the unemployment rate remains high, we're running $10 billion deficits for the fourth year in a row, and we're looking at an $80 billion, $70 billion debt, then whether there's a united party or not, the NDP are going down in flames and, and a conservative government of some stripe will be over. So, stay tuned. Thank you very much, Professor Bright. Uh, I want to say first for all of you, the, a little bad news. Our gentleman, of all gentlemen, Everett Hannes, has had open heart surgery in Calgary. His wife kept calling me daily and nightly about it, and uh, I haven't heard for three days from her now. And uh, it's sad he was one of the stalwart, honest people that you ever meet in lifetime. Uh, my question now to you is that uh, just about a year ago, when you last you spoke, I asked you one question. And you're very honorable. Your historic description, colorful description of our my time. I'm going. I'm waking at a century. But uh, politics to me is not a not a progressive word. But you've made a colorful history for yourself and your and students. Now the basic question is: What have they done for me? And my children, my grandchildren, and the great children, what have they done to us? I asked her a year ago, what are, 
royalty, you said that once. You mentioned Mr. Stelmack, he mentioned royalty, and you threw him under the bus. For the 45 years up till now, of all the various combinations of so-called politicians, what have they done for my grandchildren, great-grandchildren? And what is our royalty today? Because we're still paying, what's the right term for it? Subsidized. We're still subsidizing the foreign oil companies that have robbed us for about $250 billion. Now, what's the answer? <laughs> there's, there's no yes or no answer on that, but I'll speak just to the royalties. The Heritage Trust Fund, uh, which was established uh, in the mid-1970s by the Lockheed government, is sitting at approximately 15 to 16 billion dollars. In the early, in, so in the 1970s, they were putting money in. Starting in the mid-1980s, under Don Getty, when the price of oil plummeted in 1985-86, they have been pulling the interest out of the Heritage Trust Fund pretty much for the last 30 years. The value of the Heritage Trust Fund is roughly where it was in the mid-1980s, and if you account for inflation, a lot lower than that. And um, there's a, there was a royalty review that Ed Stelmack did. He made a platform of increasing royalty rates. There was a backlash that he felt, and so he ends up reversing course. It costs him anyway, but he reverses course. The NDP is in opposition, demanding another royalty review, demanding that royalty rates go up. When they form government in 2015, they do a panel on changing royalty rates, headed by the head of the Alberta Treasury Branch. They come back and say, there's lots of fiddling we can do from a technical point of view, but we should not be raising rates. And that's exactly what the NDP has done. And so the NDP is doing the same thing that previous governments have done on the world here. Now, there's several interpretations for that. Interpretation one would be maybe they're doing the right thing. Okay? Or interpretation two is the domination of large oil and gas companies in this province is so high and the fear of capital flight is so high that it doesn't matter who the government is. Um, they're, they're in charge. I'll leave that interpretation up to individuals here on which side you want to, to choose on. But that's kind of where we are. There was a bit of one-time only investments that Klein did. The later years of Klein, they had money rolling out of their pockets, that hence the Ralph Bucks, and there was investment into the, into the Heritage Trust Fund. But quite frankly, it is, it is very, it remains very low, and we continue to pull um, it out. My colleague at the University of Calgary, an economist by the name of Ron Niebohm, and if you want a really good analysis on the fiscal situation of Alberta, since, since Alberta became a province, bring Ron Niebohm in. Um, it'll be depressing, but that's what economists are. Uh, and he basically shows that we have not matched spending in per capita terms and revenue in per capita terms since 1949. From 1905 to 1949, spending and revenue, you map it up on a graph, they look identical. Spending goes up, revenue goes up. Revenue goes down, spending goes down. Then in 1949, we start to see a gap. 
and we spend more than we're getting in revenue, but we replace it with resource revenue. And from 49 up until the early 70s, it was, it was small, but it was steady. And then in the early 70s, when the oil economy explodes, that gap gets wider and wider and wider. And basically his argument is, we've been spending beyond our means. And now we're in a situation where spending is still here, revenue is still here, but the natural resource revenue has shrunk because of the price of oil. So what do we do? We run into debt. Just as Don Getty did 30 years ago, Rachel Notley and Joe C.C. are doing today. And so his view is whether you either increase revenue or decrease spending, he goes, those are political decisions, that's up to you, but we, Albertans have been spending beyond our means year after year after year and relying on this resource revenue. And so that's a, that's a philosophical question that someone needs to answer. That's, 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 that's decisions that governments have to make, but it's simply an empirical fact of where we, where we are. And so it becomes a political football. So people point out BC just ran a balanced budget. Alberta ran a $10 billion deficit. Conservatives would argue if we spent the same way as BC, we would have a balanced budget too. And the NDP, or progressives, not the NDP government, but other progressives would go, and if we had a sales tax like BC, we'd also be in a balanced budget. But we have chosen neither to cut spending, nor have we chosen to have a sales tax. Instead, we, and by we, I mean four million people in Alberta, have chosen to run a deficit and hope that the price of oil comes back. So those would be some of my comments on royalties. But Ron's got the numbers. Okay, this, this will be our last question, then we'll wrap it up. Uh, Dwayne, Art Sanford, and uh, thank you for your uh, attendance today and, and what you have to say. Um, I've been working actively with the Kenny campaign, yeah. and uh, I was at the uh, the vote. I was amazed at the number of people, almost 2,000 people out. I think there were nearly 1,500 voting. But you made a comment earlier, you know, there was a comment earlier about some hatred between the oil growers and, and the PCs, and, and there is some of that naturally. But what I've seen happening with the Kenny campaign, and, and I think you're accurate when you say Kenny has a habit of, of um, attracting, going to certain groups and working with them. What I've seen out there was a much, a much larger number of young people under 35 at that convention. And I think, seem to think that's where Kenny is headed right now and a lot of the work he's doing. It's not going to be trying to solve some of the older members like myself that have been in the party for years, and they're looking to the younger people, which I think is wonderful. Would you comment on that? A couple things on that. And this is when I talked about how Kenny, and I used the phrase, steamrolled his opposition in the PC party. An illustration of that was they had uh, a meeting in Red Deer where they were establishing the rules and the selection of youth delegates. And Kenny bussed in multiple buses of high school age kids because it's at the age of 16 that you can buy party membership uh, and other young people. And the other candidates, because the, the leadership race hadn't started yet, but they were establishing the rules of it. Um, it was a, it complained about it. He also brought Stephen Harper. So each of the kids would get a photo with, with Stephen Harper. Um, Stephen Harper was rejected by Canadians in 2015, but remains very popular amongst conservative Albertans. And so the, the other leadership candidates complained about this, but it was also a skill set that he had. 
and um, to be able to do that. And it was like, well, you could have done the same thing. How come you didn't rent six buses and bring in hundreds of uh, high school age kids? And it was either we hadn't thought about that, we didn't have the money, or we don't know anybody. <laughs> so um, that is a that is approach. Um, because if you look at the demographics, Alberta remains the youngest province in Confederation uh, from an aggregate age. Um, and so the key is getting them to vote. And the best illustration of this was Justin Trudeau. The Conservatives, federal Conservatives in 2015 got roughly the same amount of votes that they did in 2011. The Liberals dramatically, dramatically, millions more votes than they did in 2011. Well, where did those votes come up? Those votes came up from the under 25 crowd. Okay, the under 25s have no clue who Pierre Trudeau is. They have no memory of the NEP, but they were attracted to Justin Trudeau. And I saw him on my own campus. I've seen him at other events. And so when there is a group of voters, and they traditionally don't vote very much, whatever leader of any party that can grab that group is going to have success. So Kenny had success in the leadership race. There's no doubt about that. Um, the question is, can he get those same people out in the federal election, or in the, in the provincial election, and in the leadership? That will be, that will be the challenge. Um, but I would not underestimate his organizational skills. Um, and you just look at his track record, and I would, I would say that. Okay.